What I find interesting about this episode, and I notice this happens a lot in Deep Space Nine, is there's an episode which the creators are like, nah, but I'm like, yeah! And occasionally the creators are like, yeah! And I'm like, nah. I think the problem's with me. I really like this episode, but both Moore and Bear, who were pretty responsible for this episode, both feel like it fell completely flat on its face. I find that to be interesting, because... Well, because I feel like they succeeded at every step of the episode. First of all, there's no B-plot. Good move. Second of all, it is a Worf episode in which Worf doesn't talk a lot. Now, that of course is one of the complaints that's been leveled at this episode, but the thing is, if you think about it, this episode does actually do a lot to establish and uh, you know work on Worf as a character. You, the only... Me- <laughs> You, do, you are not limited in establishing or developing or showcasing a character just by having the character themselves talk, right? I mean, that's not how that works. There's other methods is what I'm trying to say. And this is a, a degree of... Actually, it's a form of exposition, really. Uh, showcasing of the character by, uh, by nature of those who are around him. Um, this is actually something that a lot of good fiction does a lot of good with. So... Let's talk about a couple other things, first of all. This episode is obviously inspired by the Flight 665 incident, um, which I'm not going to detail here right now. If you're really interested in the historical aspect of it, you can go look it up. Uh, It was a tragedy where a civilian craft was destroyed in a combat area, very simply put. And Weddell and Thompson both based it on that, but they both wanted Sisko to be the one in charge. It was then Bear, Ira Stephen Bear, who said, no, 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 let's go ahead and shift it over to be about Worf. And then Bear also came up with the idea for the characters to talk directly to the camera. Now, I find that interesting because I, was all, I knew this episode walking into it, and I was ready, all ready to go ahead and just be like, oh, man, it's so awesome, and this episode is a great example of why LeVar Burton is a great director because LeVar Burton directed this episode. And I thought that was his idea. Nope, it was Iris Stephen Bear's. Go figure. That being said, uh, I mean, Barton does do a wonderful job with this episode. He is a very talented and awesome director, and I praise him for that for good reason. But I also think Moore did a really good job with this. I've had this opinion for a while, but going back through TNG and Deep Space Nine has reaffirmed my opinion that Ronald D. Moore is the best writer of Klingons we've ever had in Star Trek. Now... Obviously, that's going to be a subjective opinion based on preference, but I do think he, for lack of a better way to put it, knows how to write the Klingons best. There's a reason why so many of the excellent Klingon episodes we've gotten across TNG, DS9, and Voyager have all been headed by Ronald D. Moore. Barge of the Dead over on Voyager is probably my go-to example for that, but I'm getting off topic. Anyways, the point being, I mention that because he does write the Klingons pretty accurately in this episode, as per usual. In fact, if anything, there really is only one flaw with that, which I'll get to later. Now, this teaser is probably one of the best teasers I've seen in Deep Space Nine. Now, I myself have talked about the benefit of a short teaser and how a short teaser can be awesome. But as I've also kind of been showcasing as we go through both TNG and Deep Space Nine, a lot of these teasers are closer to like the four to six minute range. This teaser is one minute and two seconds long, and honestly, it didn't have to be that long. Worf goes through a dream sequence, wakes up, shocked, and then Odo comes over, your trial, your hearing begins in four hours. Get some rest. And that's all we need, because anybody familiar with the show is like, whoa. And anyone unfamiliar with the show is, you know, is given just enough information to be interested, right? Fairly well done, in my opinion. Now, (laughs) I just want to give huge, huge props to Ron Canada. 
and I hope I'm saying his name right. I mean, just that's what it's written as, Ron Canada. I hope that is the correct name. I've actually seen him do some good work in several other movies and, and of course, in other Star Trek bits as well. But he nails Chapak in this one. He does a wonderful job of a Klingon in general, but something we haven't seen a lot of. See, Klingons constantly talk about battle, but one of the most interesting things to me personally is that battle is not necessarily bringing a sword up and smacking the other enemy. Now, we can see why that has such dominance within Klingon culture, because through literal conflict, we have things like power and wealth and prestige and glory and honor. External honor, of course. But battle is not necessarily fighting some other person with a sword, right? How many times has a doctor battled a disease? How many times has a programmer battled a virus, or just a program they're trying to construct, or an engineer battling a solution? Like, you get how I'm going with this, right? I love the idea, and this has always been my headcanon, but this episode really helped to codify it. I've always loved the idea that there are Klingons who still exonerate the glory of the fight, who love the actual conflict of trying to overcome. Now, we can see why those ha are kind of skirted under the rug, why they are lesser-known aspects of Klingon society. Uh, TNG actually very briefly covered this in the drumhead, which I'm not sure when that episode goes live relative to this one, but I'll definitely be talking about that there as well. But I bring that up because this guy is a, well, he's a prosecutor. Let's just call it what it is. He's a prosecutor attorney, and he views the legal system as the battle that he is going to face, the conflict, the win. In fact, he even loves the fact that he has to fight on someone else's terms because that means he's at a disadvantage. A very Klingon attitude. And he approaches this extremely Klingon. And that's what I love about it. Because this is pure on Klingon. This is one of the reasons why I dislike how some Star Trek, Enterprise, excuse me, tended to portray the Klingons, especially before season three and four, but, you know, as um, idiots. And I stress that because it's not just the fact that they're a warrior culture. It was the fact that they were morons. I, I, I just, I don't buy into that presentation. I look at the Klingon people and I see people who are driven by the need to prove themselves. Now, most of that's external. I've talked extensively about the difference between fake honor and real honor, and I will briefly mention that in this episode as well. But the very idea of a Klingon attorney is fascinating to me. And, again, Mr. Canada does a great job of it. Anywho, so then they send Odo off to get the facts. <laughs> I just am amused because if anybody's going to get the reality of complex facts, not simple facts, complex facts, Odo's the one to find it. The prosecutor, Chapak, then says, you know, the motive is relevant. Let me just go ahead and start saying we're going to say some slightly controversial stuff in this episode because this deals with military affairs and legal affairs, and both of those can get into some gray. I'm going to be giving my own opinions on these matters, but for the most part, I'm mostly just going to be talking about it because I would very much love... This is an episode I really want some feedback from you guys on. Not, not on me, of course. I'm terrible. But rather, what you think about the things posited in the episode. And this is the first thing. Does motive matter? Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, no, it doesn't. Well, see, in some legal systems in real life, motive does not matter. Motive can change some of the gradient, but you are, you're, guilty is guilty. If the action was taken in accident or as a side, that may or may not matter, right? And I, I could go into real-life examples of this, but you can understand how in some cases the motive doesn't really matter. Let me give you a direct example. Uh, let's say you get into a car crash, okay? Now, 
under certain circumstances, if the if a police report is filed and you are called to task for that, all the prosecutor has to do is prove that your car crashed into their car. That's it. Motive does not matter for that particular thing because the property damage was done regardless. Make sense? It doesn't matter that it was an accident. It doesn't matter that it was someone who lost control. It doesn't matter that the person who also hit the car's own car was completely destroyed and they were physically damaged by the incident. No, 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 no. Because the only thing that matters is the consequence, the actual action. But in other cases, sometimes motive does matter. For example, there's a difference between someone who, you know, trips and accidentally bumps into someone and someone who slugs someone, right? So you can see how this does, this is relevant when it comes to legal definitions. So the entirety of Chapak's uh, approach is not to argue the facts, which I actually appreciate, because personally I find that to be disgusting. I'm just going to go and be honest about that one. Like I said, just going to be honest about my opinion on this. Because motive absolutely matters. In fact, I would say motive is the first thing that matters when it comes to determining a legal system. I also, however, understand that motive is one of the difficult things to establish or produce because we can't read minds. Although, funnily enough, they can in Star Trek. That's the funny thing to me. His entire arc is based on motive. If he had just said, I want a Betazoid to come in here and scan his brain and see if he was interested in that, that's all he'd have to do. Because then they'd know the motive. Regardless, let's move on to the next point. One of the things I find interesting is that early on in the episode, Cisco has a line. This is about the search for the truth. Funnily enough, that's a lie. <laughs> if you'll forgive me for being completely blunt, legal matters are not about the truth. That is not what is relevant. The truth might matter to the defendant. Uh, the truth might matter, matter to uh, the claimant. But to the prosecutor, to the defense... Truth does not matter. Truth is not relevant. The only thing that matters is winning. That is the entire purpose. That is the, that is the extent of what an attorney's job is to do. To win. Regardless. <laughs> and what's funny about that is we see that in this episode on both sides. Cisco openly admits that he's trying to slant this case or, or grasping at straws and trying to argue things away when he himself believes he does not have a strong case. So he's trying to twist the, the facts as they could be continued. In fact, he even argues that motive does not matter, that the facts of the case are the only thing that should matter. And he doesn't do that because it's the truth. He does it because he wants to win. And Chapak, well, he doesn't care about the truth either. One of the things that a prosecutor's job is, this is not conjecture, is to try and take facts out of context or to simplify facts in order to present a... I actually forget the legal term for it, but it's basically slanting. I've talked about slanting, right? Trying to make things lean in a given direction so that the either the judge or the jury, if this is actually a jury trial, and in this case this is not because it's a court-martial, but, you know, um, is, is slanted and leaning towards thinking of things in a certain direction rather than, you know, whatever they might otherwise be thinking. That's why if you've ever wondered why you'll hear prosecutors, and this is true in real life just as in fiction, say things like yes or no, rather than trying to say yes but, or yes as well as, but yes context. No, all they want is yes or no, because all they're trying to establish is their case, because they don't care about the truth. Now again, I'm not going off on a rant here. This is fact. And in the episode, this is definitive fact, because we see that both the prosecutor and the defense, neither of them there actually care about the truth. This is definitely a battle, though, but I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, I also really love... <laughs> uh, 
I really love that the prosecutor does something that real-life prosecutors do all the time. Now, he doesn't do it for the same reason, near as I can tell. He instead, he goes to Cisco, and he offers him what is the equivalent of a plea. Now, for those of you not aware with how the legal system works, a prosecutor's office, like 99% of the time, and that might be lowballing it, will offer people they're trying to prosecute a plea agreement. Plea agreement is very simple. You agree to go ahead and say, I'm going to accept saying that I am guilty of such and such, which is less than what I'm accused of, and that way I will get less of a punishment as a consequence, right? They do this because people don't want to go through the hassle of legal battles. They don't, want, they don't have the money to go through legal battles or because, you know, they just want this over with and they know they're guilty. These are, this is extremely normal. Again, this is not a matter of conjecture. However, it's also worth noting that I find his motive behind this fascinating. I almost feel like that was put in because real-life prosecutors do that. See, within at least two counties that I'm aware of, real-life prosecutors do that because that counts as a win. In other words, they win. Done. Saves the state money, saves the county money, and it makes, the, it makes it look better on their record. So that individual prosecutor now gets to say that they have won such and such many cases, and that prosecutor's office, which functionally is a law firm in its own right, now gets to claim this additional many wins, which goes into their budget records. So there's a lot of motive for prosecutors to offer pleas in real life. Here in the States, of course, I have no idea how this works in other countries. What's the Klingon's motive by offering a plea? In case you're missing it, the plea offered is, just give Worf to us. And the, the, arg the offer he gives, the, the benefit he gives is, I'll defend him myself. That's basically the offer on table. I find that to be interesting. He himself mentions, I don't care which side I'm on, it's the battle that's interesting. That is a very lawyery attitude in its own right. But again, I actually praise the way they present that because it's so Klingon and it's so wonderful to see that kind of, oh, yes, I'm just, uh, this is going to be wonderful. I'm going to have to fight what is effectively a losing battle and I'm going to have to try my best in, in this environment. You know, it's a challenge. Don't you understand the desire of a challenge? Klingons thrive on challenging, on conflict, on pushing themselves. So of course he'd want to defend Worf. If anything, that's why this is barely even a plea. He gets something out of it, in addition to the fact that the Klingon Empire gets something out of it. Oh, I should mention, the mo it's almost a shame that Chapak flat out tells the audience exactly what the Klingons' motivations are. I kind of wish that had been left unsaid. Because, the, well, to be blunt, because the Klingons' motivations are obvious. There's twofold here. First, they get to remove war from the picture, which would be a nice... Uh, let's call it a personal win for certain members of the Klingon upper echelons. Think about that for a moment. They disown him because he's dishonorable and they strip him of his status. Is it hard to imagine that there are people, especially people in power in the Klingon Empire, who still venerate the House of Moog? Privately, of course, in closed corridors. But you can't tell me that's not a thing. If they were to then disgrace Worf as a traitor as a real traitor, as someone who murdered innocent civilians and dragged them through the muck, well, those voices would be silenced, wouldn't they? Or at the very least, they would never have the political sway to actually step up in favor of the House of Moog. Then, of course, there's the more obvious uh, political aspirations. The fact that this would be a huge embarrassment to the Starfleet and to the Federation as a whole, which would cause them to scramble to try and recover from this situation, which would allow the Klingons to take a bigger bite out of the Cardassians. All of that is super obvious, like I said. Again, I wish it had been unstated, but regardless, moving on. 
So then I just, I, I've got a comment on it. I really do like the sections where they give the, uh, the testimony. That's, that's, it's, it's great. In fact, I wish more shows would do this kind of a trick. Basically, we get to see the scene as if it was a flashback, but we also get to see them testifying out of character through what is effectively the fourth wall, but to the rest of the characters in the courtroom, not to us. It's a very strange sort of fourth wall breaking, but it's brilliant in its own right. And as ever, credit to Bear for coming up with it, credit to Moore for working with it, credit to Burton for making it work. So, just praise. I love the cork section. Oh, was it? It was Gina. And then the camera pulls back and there's a different actress there. Or maybe it was, oh, it was Warren, wasn't it? <laughs> I love that. Now, then we have to get to the ship battle section. This is, in my opinion, the weakest part of the episode. First of all, O'Brien testifies that it took about five minutes of the Defiant just fighting back and forth with two Klingon ships, one of which is mentioned in episode as being an older type battle cruiser. So some people have pointed out before that I've taken umbrage with the usage of what I called Burrell Bird of Praise, when in fact they were Cavort Bird of Praise. Valid, truly valid. And I've actually, I feel like I've already talked about that over on the TNG stuff because that's come up then. But this looks like a Katinga and it's mentioned in text to be an old battle cruiser. They're on the Defiant. And the convoy they are defending is under attack from these people. So the Defiant is, you know, reigns off completely free to utterly destroy these two ships and probably could do so inside of 30 seconds. The fact that they could go back and forth for five minutes is ludicrous. In fact, I am astonished that, that that's a thing at all. At, you know, maybe if it had been two Vorchas, I could have bought that. But this is the freaking Defiant. Insert sci-fi debris meme here. And I, I just can't buy that. It's probably one of the most unbelievable and ri ridiculous parts of the entire episode for me. Yeah, I know y'all hate it when I nitpick the ship stuff, but honestly, five minutes? Think about how long five minutes is in a combat scenario. The really interesting thing, though, is the plan is super obvious in hindsight because they were attacking in a very patterned method. This is what Worf did. He looked to the future to anticipate the enemy's next move, which he effectively successfully did, but only because the enemy was deliberately patterning their attacks so he would do this so that he would then destroy the, the transport. See, that's the interesting thing. <laughs> the destruction of the transport is funny in its own right. O'Brien gives his own opinion on the military situation. As a combat professional, you know, 200-something, whatever, battles he's been in, he says no, he wouldn't have fired. Now, what I find absolutely fascinating and actually kind of regretful for the episode as a whole is O'Brien never says why. Worf himself gives the perfect answer as to why his answer to that situation was yes, he would have fired, even knowing... Because from a military perspective of facing an enemy in combat, shooting was the right call. That's not debatable. Everything that is lined up makes it very clear that in the moment, trying to anticipate against an enemy force, which is actually trying to destroy them and innocent civilians, there is absolutely no cause to pull their fire back. None. That being said, that really only applies under two things. One, if we presume this is a purely military affair, which as Cisco points out later, it is not. And two, for some reason the Defiant was needing to be able to out-tactic its enemies, which it's not. 
Again, going back to my earlier problem, even if that's a cavort and a katinga, the defiant could crush those again. And I'm standing by the statement in 30 seconds. This is why I say if it was two vorches, this would have worked better. Because then the defiant would have been, you know, a little more hard-pressed to keep up. And it would have been more likely to show that the defiant was... Tr that Worf was tr effectively trying to out-tactic an enemy that he was having trouble keeping up with. Right? Simple change. Anyways. This brings us to my main point. Chapak... <laughs> Uh, Chapak goes ahead and questions Worf directly. And he says a lot of interesting things. It's, it's a great analysis. That's actually probably my favorite scene in the entire bit, is when Chapak is questioning Worf. How could you fire on your own people? Which is hysterical, given how many times Klingons kill other Klingons as a standard course of operating procedure. But anyways. But then he says, Worf says there's nothing honorable about killing those who cannot defend themselves. Now Worf sta states that and believes it 100%, because what he means is that he believes in real honor, internal honor. That that's his shtick. Uh, obvious, you know, we've established this many times. So he believes that there is nothing, let's call it what it is, right about attacking civilians. And I'm with him on that. It's rule one of the military. You do not attack civilians. So, I know, a little idealistic, but I stand by it. So, Worf, you know, <laughs> gives this statement to Chapak. And then Chapak provokes him and provokes him and provokes him and provokes him. And he just hits him over and over and over again. Until finally Worf can't take it anymore. Proving Chapak's point. Or rather, not proving it. See, the funny thing is, Chapak was trying to prove that Worf had a killer instinct and that he was lost in the bloodlust. But ultimately, what he successfully proved is that Worf really wanted to strike back and hurt those who had so damaged him and all of his. And that's such an understandable motive, isn't it? Because Worf was wronged. No, really. From basically every perspective, what happened to Worf after uh, the Way of the Warrior was wrong. That they stripped innocent people. People who had nothing to do with his decision of their titles, of their house, of their position, of their rank, of their standing, in some cases of their lives. That, that he did all of this garbage, it was wrong. The desire to right a wrong is a very strong thing in a human. Imagine someone like Worf, who has the human upbringing to still th think of the things in terms of right or wrong, honorable or dishonorable. So of course Worf wanted to strike back at these people who are trying to shame him yet again, who are trying to slander him yet again. It is thus ironic that this slander was absolutely justified, or rather, to be more accurate, that it was not slander. Slander, by definition, is inaccurate. That's, that's, what it's, that's why it's called slander. But Worf really did have something to prove. He really did want to strike back. As he himself states at the end of the episode, he didn't realize that until Chapak gave him a reason to strike him. At last. <laughs> See, that's the funny thing about this episode. Worf was guilty. Oh, he wasn't guilty of killing civilians, but that's the fact, not the motive. Worf was guilty. And by circumstance, he got off on that. Now, I stress that circumstance part because all you have to do to picture this working out in the Klingon Empire's side is all you have to do is think of there actually being real civilians on that ship. 
Considering the gains that this would bring, it would not have been hard for the Klingon Empire and whoever was organizing this. We know they have their own Section 31 equivalent. I can't remember its name right now. Please forgive me. It's House something. Anyways, imagine if they had the people who were setting this up had actually put real Klingon civilians on a real Klingon transport with you know someone who had orders to go and decloak in front of the Defiant at the right time. Boom. Real civilians killed. Real massacre happened. Worf is not only guilty of motive, but fact. Boom. Case done. And the Klingon Empire wins. I am astonished they didn't do that. It's not like they wouldn't get enough back out of it. And given how Klingons tend to prefer external honor and venerate dying, of course they would go for that. <laughs> Why wouldn't they? Oh yeah, I should probably mention, although this gets into spoilery territory, but all I'm going to say is that the Dominion profits from everything that would have happened if the Klingons won this trial too. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So, we get to the end of the episode, and Worf has actually a really good scene between him and Sisko. And what I like best about that scene is Worf says a line, I do not feel lucky. In other words, he doesn't feel good about everything because, because he was guilty. Because he really did have something to prove, because he really did want to strike back. Because he seized the moment. He, he thought of things in terms of, let's call it what it is, revenge. And that is functionally wrong for someone in a command situation to do. He should have checked his fire. Remember how earlier I mentioned it was a purely military decision and a purely military moment? That's not quite the situation, though, is it? Sisko himself says something that I myself adhere to when it comes to ideology, that a military life is, by definition, less valuable than a civilian life. Not because they're lesser of a people or they're slaves or whatever other stupid concept, but instead because if a military life can lay down its life, willingly, knowingly, in order to save a civilian life, done. And thus, Starfleet, though military, in fact, actually, to be blunt, Starfleet, if indeed, let's assume it's military for a second, Starfleet, because it's military, should have been willing to accept the fact that that was an enemy ship in order to verify it. Not under normal circumstances, of course. If this was just a battle out in the middle of Timbuktu, yeah, yeah sure, fire. But it wasn't. It was a known civilian trade traffic line. He should have checked his target. Because the loss of the Defiant would have been acceptable for the salvation of the civilians. And that's what Cisco tells him. A very interesting episode. Now, I, I'm sorry, I mentioned this at the beginning. I've been giving a lot of my own opinions throughout this one. My opinion about military, my opinion about what I just said, about how they should have been willing to lay down their life, um, my opinion that Worf was guilty. I would really like to hear your guys' thoughts on this one because this is a fascinating episode and there's a lot to unpack here. So I hope you've enjoyed my incredibly amateur and awful thoughts on this one. I'll see you next time, guys.